Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, just finished filming on Kitchen Cabinet. Woohoo! Yeah. I love that kind <laughs> was it of fun or is it just stressful? Uh, oh, it's always fun and interesting. Um, but it was stressful this year because I took some time off um, when my sister-in-law died and or before she died actually. And so everything got like squished up a little bit, so it was, right. you know. But um it's sort of a bit the end of an era because my producer um is sort of winding up at the ABC and so uh, a bit emotional and um, – but it's a really – it's such a good season. So the last one that we shot just now was um, Jordan Steelejohn, oh, yeah. who is a Green senator from WA. He's also the first person in a wheelchair to be in the Senate and just such an amazingly interesting life story and a very modest, funny, funny person. We had a really good time. Oh, um, And so many insights about – the assumptions that are made about how Parliament House works and how it really works if you show up in a chair because uh, there are so many things that people don't really spot about how hard that is. It is so good, like you talking about his episode makes me think also of the Di Lee episode. Mm. It is so good to have people in the Parliament, regardless of what party they're mm-hmm. in, <clears throat> who have had a life experience yep. that not many people in the Parliament have had. And so mm. Di Lee's where she talked about coming to Australia as a refugee and her experience of being on a boat yep. and what that was like, oh, my God. It was, it was it incredibly just moving mouth, right? yeah. hearing her talk about that experience and then other challenges in her life, having breast cancer. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just it's so valuable to hear those stories. I think with Jordan who, I mean, he was homeschooled by his mum and he um, grew up with an understanding of his disability that wasn't about, you know, there's, there being something wrong with him. It was about, you know, yeah, um, what you're great at. And, like, I think when he was at home with his mum, a lot of time he'd hear her navigating the health system on the phone hours and hours on end, trying to get a good result for him, trying to get um, the appointments she needed. Um, also dealing with welfare organisations that didn't have much money at all because they had all sorts of health issues happening. And I think that having people in the parliament who know how hard it is to navigate these bureaucratic systems as a, as a client is actually really important because oh, if you haven't had tough times, yeah. you don't you don't really kind of know how hard that stuff is. One not that you get into this on the show, but one of the things I find really interesting about politics and I feel like it's not often explored because people often when they write about politics write about strategy Mm. whereas you're looking more at people's actual lives Mm. and the bigger story when I'm watching it I often am thinking about politics and psychology and and when you see these people's backstories what I find fascinating is thinking about then where their political views have ended up yep and so it's really intriguing because clearly some people if they end up say at the liberal party end of politics they might have had a tough upbringing, they might have been in poverty, they might have been through trauma and challenges and all of that kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, where they've landed at is the power of the individual to triumph Mm. over circumstances. And then other people, they have similar tragedy, trauma, um, challenging life experiences, Mm -hmm. and where they end up is the power of the collective. Um, Right. And I find that just intriguing that, you know, something makes you go in one direction or the other and you can be at these really different places. Well, I think Di Lee and Jordan Steeljohn are really good examples of that because, I mean, Di Lee as a seven-year-old is on this boat. She doesn't know why she's there. 
and she has this realisation, she thinks, I am all alone. There is actually, like, I'm here with my mum, I'm here with my two little sisters, but if this boat goes over, they can't help me. I am, you know, nobody can help me. And so perhaps that's a turning point for her. Whereas Jordan Steele, John grew up in a house with four generations of his family, like they all lived together. So his perception about how to address problems is as part of a kind of collective and is wound up in the Greens. And, you know, and even Peter Dutton, for instance, who, you know, had a pretty comfortable childhood but then went into the cops and was quite damaged, I think, by all the stuff that he saw there, you know, really terrible crimes committed against children and that sort of thing, you know, that's changed him too and I think that he's developed this sort of like goodies and baddies, like, you know, lock up the baddies, you know, just it's sort of like a defensive fear response to the terrible things that he's seen. Like so people's early um, experiences are massively significant in terms of the decisions they make in politics. So I watched this film yesterday that kind of speaks to a few of these themes. One is around, um, you know, stories that you don't often hear and the other is about similar upbringing Mm. but different outcome. Um, So uh, to give a bit of – so let me give some context first as to how I got to it. Lisa Miller and I are recording this podcast about the TV show The Newsreader. It's oh, about right, to come yeah. back. Um, so one of those companion season. podcast type things. Exactly, That's such yeah, a good idea. For the ABC. And so we've been recording So that. you're doing – like, so you chose to do that with your, your best friend rather I did. than yeah. – I did, yeah. Cool. yeah. yeah. Right. But, you know, she's allowed me to make time for my second best friend, so, you know, here I am. Very understanding of it. <laughs> so um, we – uh, because it's like a companion podcast thing, it kind of follows the model, I guess, of the, say, Succession podcast where it's partly us chatting and then we interview people associated with the show in the back half of the show. And so one of the episodes, the new season of The Newsreader, I might add, is absolutely fantastic. It's really mm. great. It's better than the first season. It's fantastic. Um, so one of the episodes, because it's set obviously in the 1980s, is mm. in 1988 and it's the Bicentenary Celebrations. Mm. And the episode is written by this Indigenous screenwriter called mm. Adrian Russell Wills, oh, yeah. gay Indigenous man. Um, he came in for an interview so we could talk about the episode. Mm. And you know how sometimes you're talking to people and you just immediately like, oh, I just love you. Yeah. Like I just click with you straight away he was like that and he was just such a beautiful humble person who's written on Redfern now Wentworth like major major shows done his own films Mm. and then he kept referring to it he was so humble every time we'd try to go Adrian you've done a fantastic job of this episode it's so nuanced he'd be like oh well you know it was partly just that he would constantly be trying to give credit elsewhere he was so humble anyway I just loved him he just had like beautiful warm gentle energy do you know what I like about that is that Honestly, sometimes people think like the writing on a show is just an invisible thing or that, you know, that TV shows that work, work because they are great actors, you know, or being directed by great directors or whatever. But actually like the writing is, like if the writing's not you got nothing to work with. Then you're, then you can tell that the actors are uncomfortable. You can, it's hard to watch you know like so something like Mr in between which is I think one of the best written Australian TV shows I've ever seen part of its compelling nature is that the writing is so sharp yeah and the so I mean but it's it's not something you specifically always notice it's more of a sense you're like why is this working whereas this feels awkward and embarrassing if something works 
at the heart of it, in my view, I would say this probably because I'm a writer, I'm biased, but it has to be good writing. You can't make something good if it's not well written. Yeah. Um, you can elevate something that's maybe average writing to be really good if mm. the performances are great, but you but you are not going to be able to overcome, you know, yep. you're not going to be able to get to true greatness, I don't reckon, if the yep. writing's not there. Anyway, so interviewing Adrian Russell Wills. And so we're talking to him about, well, what was your experience of the bicentennial? And so... He had been adopted at, at three days old. He was born in Burke. He'd been, he was unwell as a baby. He was sent to Sydney. His family was told that he died, but he was actually adopted out. Far out. And so he was adopted by this extremely wealthy white family in Mossman. And mm. so his upbringing was with this very affluent family. And so when he talked about 1988, he said, it was actually a real pivotal moment in my life because we were on a boat on Sydney Harbour for the celebrations and he said it was oh like the Sydney elite and everyone was dressed in white. And oh. so it was his parents and it was Nick Whitlam, Nick Griner, like that level of Sydney elite. Um, and he said at a certain point he looked at the shore and there was like an Indigenous protest at the shore and he had this feeling of... Am I on the right boat? I'm on the wrong place. I'm in the wrong place. I'm supposed to be over there. And so... Wow. And so he, he then had a friend who kept saying to him you got to meet my friend Jill, who was also an Indigenous woman who had been adopted by a fairly, mm. um, not affluent, but like they lived at Avalon, mm. so not not affluent, um, Sydney family. Mm. And so eventually Adrian and Jill met, I think in their 20s, mm. and then they became like best, best friends. And so Jill's um, Gillian Moody, um, her name is, she's oh, a Oh, okay, producer. right, yeah. So they've made this film which just had um, a release at the Melbourne Film Festival called Kindred. And so mm. when we finished the interview, oh, okay, yeah, of course it. Adrian and I kept yapping on because we were getting on great. And then he very kindly sent me, because I said, oh, I'd love to watch that because I found his backstory mm. so intriguing. So he sent me a screener so I could watch the film. And it's it's just the most beautiful film um, so it's basically him and Gillian. It starts just with them kind of jumping in a car and going somewhere together. And it's about kind of the, I guess, grounding of it is their friendship and this very unusual thing that they came across each other, mm. these two black kids raised mm. in affluent white families. And then it follows each of their process to finding their birth family and mm. connecting with their birth family. Mm. And then just what it was like to kind of grow up in these environments and then, you know, I guess where you kind of in this no man's land where you don't know your birth family and mm. even when you meet them they're kind of strangers to you but you look at them and they like look similar to you and there's a kind of yeah. sense of connectedness <clears throat> there but then also you know you've grown up in this affluent white world and so Adrian's experience was that he had ended up having massive massive conflict with his family his adopted mm. family and had basically been thrown out when he was in his late teens and then he kind of found his way he got embraced by the sydney gay community kind of found his way from there and then he found his family in burke and so forth and then um jillian's story was that she um found her birth family who were in southern new south wales and then she had a much happier experience with her adopted family. They mm. were very close-knit. She absolutely loved them. Her experience was harder because she felt like, I don't want to hurt my adopted mum because yeah. I just absolutely love her. Yeah. And then now there's this woman down the south coast that I've also got this connection with. But her mo her adopted mother was so gorgeous in the way that she kind of embraced, you know, the other mm. side of the family as well. So it, it was just the most powerful and moving exploration of these two lives and what it left you with and I sent Adrian a message after I watched it and said what it really just left me with was um 
just the power of love and connection with yeah. other human beings. Um, and, you know, they, Adrian and Jill had that with each other, but mm. then they'd also found it with this diverse array of people, mm. some of whom were family members, some of whom were not, some of whom were people they knew well, um, you know, some of whom they didn't. And, um, yeah, it was it was a profoundly beautiful piece of work that I hope gets seen by a lot of people. Kindred, it's What called. about, a, I mean, just even human um, resilience and ability to kind of extract love even from like a, a life circumstance that is stressful and puts you in a position where you don't know who you are or you've got to choose or, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, our episode of Kitchen Cabinet with Linda Burney, which aired recently, I mean, her story is just one of the most extraordinary, I think, in the Australian Parliament. Um, she was her – her teenage mother left the hospital when she was born and nobody wanted her. Um, she had a, a black dad and a white mum, but her dad didn't even know that she was pregnant and didn't know of Linda's existence until Linda was about 30. Mm. Um, whereupon Linda discovered she had 10 brothers and sisters. Wow. Whoa. Anyway. That's a bit um, like Adrian. Right. Yeah. Um but what happened was that Linda's elderly great aunt and uncle, brother and sister duo who lived together in a really rudimentary home, took her in. And they looked after her till she was about 13 or 14 and then she looked after them because they were elderly and they died when she was in her mid-teens. Anyway, I'm always interested in these the effect that these early life experiences have, as you know. and Yeah, and yeah. also how sometimes people can kind of unlock something for you. Like one of the most profound bits in Kindred was Adrian's talking about how the world he grew up in, you know, you were kind of valued by your achievement. Mm. He was good at sport at school. And mm. so it's like you're valued by how much money you have, who you are, what mm. your status is, um, what kind of house you have, how mm. how much you've excelled in your chosen field and so on and then he said and then he felt like he wasn't really any of that and then when he connected with his birth family he was made to feel like your presence alone is value mm. that's your value is your presence um and it was that kind of um just acceptance that you don't really have to bring anything here other than yourself and you know we are happy with you he had this incredible um woman in the show Eunice who was his aunt I think um and she was just so incredibly wise and he's kind of just shown up and she's like oh yeah I knew I knew you hadn't died she said I've been looking for you and you know for years it was like you know he was 30 by this point she's like I've been looking for you every year every year on your birthday I'd try to ring people to find out where you were I just knew that you weren't gone because I would have felt it um Mm. it was just really incredible loved it that just reminds me of a book that I read um a few months back I went to a session just randomly at the Sydney Writers Festival and saw Paul um, Callaghan or Callaghan speaking about the book that he's written with Uncle Paul Gordon called The, the Dreaming Path. And he talks a bit about um, his like real young, high-flying um, public servant bureaucrat um, and he had this full nervous breakdown when he was about 30. And he was married, had a house, you know, a couple of cars, a couple of kids, doing really well, and he just fell apart. And he writes about this in the book. Um, and he just went back on country to kind of establish who he was. And the techniques that he talks about, you know, discovering 
you know, for, forgiving himself for failing at something and being able to embrace life is so profound. I found it a really useful book um, and well, would well, recommend it. While we're on deeply meaningful yeah. um, life lessons, I finally watched Still, the Michael J. Fox doco oh, that you had recommended yeah. to me to watch. Yeah. which um, First recorded instance of me watching something to do with Michael J. Fox before you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that was just incredible. That One of the lines that stayed with me was when he said, or talking about life, he said, you know, you think it's made out of bricks and cement, but it's mm. made out of paper and feathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were just so many moments to love in that. I mean, it didn't make me cry as much as I thought <clears throat> it would, um, mostly because he's just so incredible. Like yeah. he just is so – his strength is just – gobsmacking i think you talked about the bit at the start where he's walking down the street and then this woman goes oh my god it's michael j fox wow and he sort of says hi and then it's so difficult for him to walk and be balanced the mere act of doing that he falls over Mm. and then the woman kind of turns around he's with a carer the woman Mm. kind of turns around and then michael j fox goes lady you knocked me off my feet (laughs) like just his way of you know managing stuff there was a beautiful anecdote too where when he's cast in back to the future or no it's family ties when he gets Mm. the family ties role the studio executive who's interviewed him says you know michael this michael j fox what like that little pipsqueak like he's not going to be marketable like i can't see him you know his face being on kids lunch boxes and then family ties of course is massive and michael j fox is the biggest star and then michael j fox gets a lunch box made with his face on it and sends it to the executive <laughs> it was just so beautiful but it was um the early the stuff on Family Ties with Tracy Pollen, where he meets her is very moving, kind of watching them as young people yeah. get together. Um, the other thing is that it's, it's such an incredible piece of filmmaking <sighs> because obviously the documentary, the master interview mm. is with Michael J. Fox today. Yeah. But what they managed to do is, and because Family Ties is just such a long-running show, Basically, every plot line imaginable has been canvassed in that show. Yeah. And so, for example, um, when he's recounting making back in back in time for dinner, I was about to say, what's it called? <laughs> I saw, on the way here in My the car, brain. I said to Crab, I said, you know when you did that show, Old People's Home for Dinner? And she was like, you have just managed to like clash together <laughs> two entirely separate shows I did. Yeah. Um, anyway... Uh, what back Sorry, to the future back yeah, to the future, future was the, yeah. oh god but he was making family ties full time at that time and so oh, they made him was... shoot for um back to the future at night so he was <gasps> he was working two jobs oh. and cuz that's the only way he could do it he'd and go home and sleep for 3 hours in yeah. between and then oh, unbelievable. his driver would come up and make a cup of coffee so that he could just get maximum amount of sleep oh my god it was i don't know how he did it however um there was in family ties a storyline where alex takes on a second job. And so <laughs> they actually managed to yeah, slot they in yeah. this dialogue with contemporary of the time, Michael J. Fox saying, it's killing me, it's killing me. They but, use a whole yeah. lot of clips from yeah. Michael J. Fox films like that where he'll talk about, you know, I woke up after this massive bender and they have like a scene from a film where the character's yeah. waking up because he has such an extensive body of work. Yeah. You can illustrate. Yeah. It's very clever. Yeah. And then the master interviews him just looking down the barrel. It'd yeah. be really amazingly shot. Yeah, um, yeah it's... Uh, it's a really fantastic piece of work. I mean, the other thing that's incredible is because he talks about when he was making Spin City how he he knew by then and had known for quite a while that he had Parkinson's but mm. it wasn't publicly known. Now in hindsight, when you watch Spin City, it, it's so obvious And because he talks about all the ways that he attempts to mask it and, mm. and, you know, like certain days of shooting where things were really bad and he's like, I just walked around with my, one of my hands in my pocket the whole time because I could yeah. not stop shaking. And when they play the clips of days when he's, 
struggling and after he's told you all the techniques he uses to mask it, it, it it's kind of heartbreaking. It's so so obvious that something was wrong. Um, yeah. Anyway, it was a, it was a terrific doco. It's on Apple, I think. Um, I watched just something. Became unusually serious this episode. Oh well, it? I'm about to just throw the switch to vaudeville a little bit. Um, I watched the entire series of Hostage so that I could watch Idris Elba <laughs> just be Idris. I heard it's really bad. Yeah, it's not great. Okay. But I kept watching it anyway. Did you just turn so, the volume down and just watch Idris? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, look, it's it's fine. It's, you know, suspenseful. The idea is that Idris Elba is this sort of negotiator. He's split up with his wife. He's now dating a hot new guy who's a cop. And he's flying home to, to I don't know, try and fix things, I think. And um, he happens to be on a plane that gets hijacked. Right. And the hijackers, you know, you sort of start to work who the, who out who they are. Um, this is basically Die Hard, except yeah. it stays on the plane instead it's of going totally to the Die Hard on the plane. Yeah, yeah okay. that's right. Yeah, and so anyway, I mean, you just—he's wearing a <laughs> snug-fitting jumper. That's all you need to know. Like, he's just. <laughs> I watched till the end. At the end, I'm like, okay. I'm just um, also, your there's review. a really good um, lady traffic controller who I really liked as well. Um, I I don't know why that just made me think of this, but Ke- my friend Candle Melanie sent me to a film. Oh, Melanie, that was she's part- lovely. She's got other skills. Yeah. It was part of a Scandi film festival, and she said, mm. oh, "I highly recommend this. It's funny and kind of tense." And so I went and had a look at it. It was called Wild Game. It was an Icelandic film and the premise of it was this group of friends of all about our age, Mm. mostly couples and one single dude, are having a dinner party at one of the friends' place. Clearly Mm. they're friends who catch up all the time. They've known each other for years Mm. and years. And they end up deciding to play this game where everyone has to put their phones on the table Mm. and any call, any text that comes in, calls have to be taken on speakerphone and texts have to be read aloud to the table. (laughs) No way! Absolutely no way. And it goes from there. And it's, I mean, immediately you start thinking like. Oh, that's such a good premise. It was a great premise. Immediately you're thinking, um, oh, well, maybe it's going to be, someone's going to be busted for having an affair. But there's so many calls you can have that are awkward, like a medical thing. Or one of the characters, the daughter rings to speak to the father and then she's kind of talking about the mother who, of course, that is sitting right there hearing it. Um, Anyway, it became, it was borderline I mean, it's black comedy, but for me it was getting to borderline horror because it was just someone's phone would ring and you'd be like, oh, I just don't know how much more of this I can take. It was wow. chilling. Yeah, it was really chilling. It so was hang stressful. On. Do you have to go to Scandi Film Festival to see this or can yeah, you find it somewhere? Uh, well, keep an eye out for it. It's called Wild Game. I did see it as part of a film festival. But, oh, God. Um, yeah. Actually, that actually gives me it, it, It's very well done, um, but, yeah, it was actually – it made me anxious watching it, that's for sure, <laughs> and made me vow that I will never, you know, and hilariously bloody Melanie and Canute are having us over for a dinner thing soon and I just thought they better not be thinking we're going to do that phone oh, game. Oh, they're, they're totally going to do it. Just saying it publicly It'll just be right like now. a bunch of scented candles lit around the place. <laughs> Got your phones are fully charged. Brilliant. Can't wait. leaving my phone I'll be home. just texting you things like, you know, um, things about Melanie just on the off chance. <laughs> Imagine how chilling it would be too because you just can never be quite sure like who or what might call or text right? you randomly yeah. who you haven't heard from for ages. Yep, so, absolutely. Yeah, I think that would be pretty pretty chilling. Um, so when I was on my way back from Perth, and this is where I was going to start like 20 minutes ago. Yeah, oh, okay. I had the rare experience of being on a plane with, you know, I'd wrapped filming so I didn't have any prep to do. It was a weekend day and the... 
um, aircraft entertainment system was working. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. Woo! So I watched a film called Pieces of a Woman, yeah. which um, it was like it goes back a few years. And Vanessa Kirby, who is the lead role in it, was nominated for an Academy Award as um, Best Actress. She didn't win. But I thought, oh, yeah, I remember th- hearing that that was a great movie. Now, it was a slight error because I didn't know what the movie was about and it turns out to be pretty harrowing um, because it's about um, a woman who loses her baby whilst having a home birth and then it's sort of what happens then with her relationship with her partner, her family want her to sue the midwife, she doesn't, um, it's, you know, it's. I wouldn't recommend it as what a cheery made you thing want to watch this? because I knew that it was a great movie. That's right. all I knew. Like right. I remembered. Oh yeah, I remember this was nominated for an Academy Award, and I haven't seen it. Right. And the actor in it, Vanessa Kirby, is also. I was sort of like, what? Oh my god, what do I know you from? Yeah. She's got like shaggy sort of blonde hair. She's beautiful, but she was Princess Margaret in The Crown. Oh, the young Princess Margaret. Young Princess oh, yeah. Margaret. She's, she's so beautiful. an incredible actor. Um, yeah. But she's got blonde hair, so I'm like, ah. Right. Anyway, look, I mention it because I did watch it all the way to the end. Uh, it's a terrific movie. Her partner is played by Shia LaBeouf. Oh, yeah. And he is kind of like this, he's a um, wharfie and she's um, the child of this quite posh sort of New York family. And so the mum doesn't like him at all and, you know, thinks that he's, you know, not good enough for her beautiful daughter, is doing things like, you know, bought them a car so that, you know, because he can't provide sort of thing. Like it's quite a complicated set of family relationships. Um, And Sarah Snook is in it as well Mm. as a cousin who is also a lawyer and gets involved. Anyway, the reason I mention it just in a sort of um, filmmaking sense is that the film opens – or begins like very close to the beginning of the film, is a 20-minute um, uh, sequence that is one shot and it's her being in labour. Mm. Wow. And so it's her kind of like, you know, they're watching a movie, she's kind of like, and then she's, you know, getting increasingly um, the contractions. I think she's got contractions every six minutes or something right. when, when you start this sequence. Right. And it's extraordinary. Like, a, you know how people, depictions of childbirth in um, films are always like. You, yeah. You know. Yeah. But it's um, it's really powerful. She's incredible. Has yeah. she chosen to have a home birth or has does the labour happen quickly and then she's just having a child? She's chosen home? to have a home birth right. against the wishes of her mother. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> and she's got um, a midwife who she really trusts. And at the last minute, that midwife, when they call her, is busy with somebody else right. and so they send a different midwife. Right. Um, with whom and that makes her feel a bit panicky. Right. Um, but the midwife when she turns up is very, you know, calming and anyway, it's not oh, it stressful. It it is. And I didn't know what was going to happen while I was watching it, but like as it went on, I'm like, oh, <laughs> how is this gonna become an Academy <laughs> Award winning drama unless something, you know, so I didn't yeah, right. know anything about the shape of the thing. But right. anyway, it also also reminded me that there's a book that I've been wanting to mention for ages. Um, ages and ages. Um, and it's um it's about miscarriage and um it's, I swear, everyone, I've got some cheerier content coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. I'm just getting this out of the way, but like seriously, um so 
This is by um, a woman called Isabel Oderberg, um, who I think I was colleagues with at The Age many, many years ago. Um, she's had a number of miscarriages and she talks about um, how miscarriages dealt with through the medical system. And it's absolutely fascinating. It's um, got its very readable tone and it's um, beautifully researched, but also readable and, you know, at some points you're kind of laughing along with her. It's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's really good. So sometimes people write books that are super useful and this is one of them. I have not had a miscarriage myself, but I know many people who have. And I think it's, oh, it's a classic sort of thing that happens where people don't know how to deal with you, right? And as you know from researching this sort of general area in any ordinary day, there is nothing lonelier than something dreadful happening to you where people don't know how to yeah care for you how to deal with it can I just rip through a few things that have been on my list for ages that I just feel like I just they're all quick short ones you recommended a couple of podcasts ago tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow <gasps> by Gabrielle Zevin have you read it yes I went straight from actually that was at the Adelaide show in the airport on the way home it was sitting right there at the front yeah, of the book pile and so I thought that's the universe telling me to read it so I went and got it it's great it's a good I've been in a real reading slump and mm -hmm. it's been actually quite a good book to try to propel me a bit forward out of that it's, a bit, it's about a friendship that ebbs and flows over a that was first recommended to me by Greta the chatter who I met on the plane yes, that time and she's been very very good with the recommendations I read um, Hedley Thomas who did the teacher's pet podcast there's a book that's now coming oh, out about okay. it. it goes into it in a lot more depth and explains puts a lot more context mm -hmm. around it it's really good and I highly if you liked the podcast you'd like it but I also really recommend it for journalism students or young journalists because it just a bit like the podcast does, it really unpacks the way Hedley Thomas does investigative mm. journalism, which is just a useful learning tool. I mentioned... And Hedley's in your book, isn't, isn't he? He is, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. in Storytellers. Storytellers. Um, out now. The, yeah, out now. <laughs> Sorry, I know you hate pimping, but I want to pimp your because it's a very good book. Um, then... I think a few times ago on the podcast I mentioned I'd started watching a very old um, BBC drama called Spooks. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I remember Spooks. Which has Matthew yeah. McFadgen. Yeah. And I said I was having a really hard time because I can't not see Tom from Succession and the character's yeah. name in the show is Tom just yeah. to make matters harder. I've pushed through and persevered and right. I've got, I, well can, I can watch him now. Oh. <laughs> so now I feel like I'm kind of into that show more. And it's also, it's great. It's kind Good of job, a, Sales. It's kind of a procedural. <laughs> it's the same characters and their stories kind of develop slowly and then every week there's like a different case that, that, that MI5 and MI6 are involved with. So that's good. Um, there's a, I've been meaning to talk about this for so long, Landline, great ABC show. There was an episode that I watched <gasps> recently called Outback Musical. They did such a great job of it. They follow a heap of kids in different remote locations who all come together once a year in Longreach to perform a, a school musical. They're all kids who do school of distance education. And so they have to do their dance routines and their songs all learnt remotely and practised on Zoom. <laughs> and then they get together and then they have a show together. It's just the most heartwarming thing. And there's a couple of kids in it that are just so divine. It's just beautiful. It's a really great episode of Late Line. And then the last thing I Landline. just... Landline. Oh, did I say late line? You did, oh, mate. Yeah, sake. that's a dead show. Landline. L much lamented. Landline. Um, and then I, again, I'm very late to this and people told me at the time to watch it and I've only just gotten around to it. Mozart in the Jungle. Oh, I haven't watched that. Okay, on Amazon Prime. It's great. I'm really loving it because, of course, I would love something. It's about an orchestra in New York and the inner workings of the orchestra. And from what I know of orchestras, it's kind of very, it's based on a book written mm. by someone who was in an orchestra, so right. it's very true to life. I'm having a bit of a problem. I started watching it when I was watching Tar. Oh yeah. And there's a I'm I'm 
I'm going to just drop a spoiler out because I assume Mozart in the Jungle has been around so long. If you okay. haven't watched it, it's your own fault. It's on okay, you. I'll take that on board. <laughs> uh, the They've got a new conductor who comes in, new artistic director, new chief conductor, um, who's this very passionate Spanish guy and this young oboist is his personal assistant and it's clear there's going to be a bit of romantic tension and then it ends up with he, at the end of season one, gives her a big kiss and then there's this kind of awkward dynamic. Amazing. Because it was all made pre-Me Too, I'm just like, well, I know how this story's going to go. Dude, you're going to be... Nothing She's going to win... She's going to, in uh, 20 years' time, claim that she was assaulted and abused even though it's consensual and you're going to be completely cancelled. And so that's the politics has ruined it, especially because I was watching Tar at the same time, right. which is in that space. So, How um, old is Mozart in the Jungle? Oh, it's got to be seven or eight years old. Like yeah, it's right. pre all of that stuff. So um, I'm just watching it going power imbalance and just being a, a complete narc the entire time. So it's just, yeah, I can't Get really, your hands off the oboes. I'm, Step away I'm, from the oboes. That's right, exactly. I'm just, I'm, I'm liking it. It's a, it's an entertaining show, but I can't divorce the real world now from the kind of, because, I mean, this used to be a trope, right, of things where people in power in workplaces were having relationships and it was just kind of accepted as it's part just a of cool the narrative. Thing, yeah. yeah. Mm. And so now I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't. I'm having trouble watching this because I just think, dude, you can't be going around kissing your PA in, in a work no, setting. That would make you the head of the Spanish Football Federation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's rock and roll. Let's do it. That was very invigorating. Very Thank you. Very invigorating. Great conversation. Yes. If I um, say so Quick reminder, uh, Melbourne, Chat 10, it, it draws near. What date is it again? The 13th. Friday the 13th of October. Yes, exactly. Uh, at Hamer Hall, we have things planned. We do. Um, anyway, end on a plug. It's very plugly. Sorry. <laughs> at least we Sorry. Well, just yeah, at least we didn't drop it at the start. That's, you know, exactly. be, be thankful for small things. <laughs> All right. Go about your business.